Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today, we have on the line the eminent Gregory Boyd. Gregory Boyd, he, of course, is the pastor of Woodland Hills Church, and he it's his most recent book, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, this multi-volume, huge amount of pages of work that everyone's trying to dig through. So, Greg, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, who is Greg Boyd? Let me see. Uh, well, I'm a 60-year-old uh, pastor, author, uh, husband uh, for 37 years. I have a lovely wife, Shelly. I've got uh, three grown grandkids, and I've got, I mean, three grown kids and f- uh, five uh, grandkids. Uh, and we just got a new dog yesterday morning. <laughs> and so we have a three-month-old puppy. So we have a lot of peeing and poop to clean, clean after. <laughs> Uh, I like to run, and I like to race walk, and I like to drum. I'm a drummer in a rock band, uh, but we don't play my favorite kind of music, which is heavy metal. I like, <laughs> I, like I like power metal, epic power metal. That's it's that's cool stuff. Mm-hmm. I grew up in South Dakota, and there there was a lot of uh, like screamo Christian music. Every concert you went to, that was a Christian concert. Yeah. So it, it's kind of a weird Christian scene, but I like it. It's good. I I, I see. I don't like the screamo stuff. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I'm too old to get into that. Uh, I, I, I like what there's melodic thing, singing, but real heavy bottom to it, you know? <laughs> Turning guitars with a female melodic voice, it's perfect. Nice. All right, so let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, your views, your, your views about uh, openness theology. You are one of the main, main forerunners for the modern open theist movement. So... Uh, I, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, no. I, I think the forerunners for the modern openness movement go back to, um, like, like uh, uh, Cunningham, uh, who started YWAM, mm-hmm. uh, Lawrence Cunningham. Uh, he was openness in the 50s. And, and there's a number of thinkers uh, there that were teaching an open view of the future way back in, in the 50s. And then um, it, it kind of died down some because the evangelicals put so much pressure on him. Walter Martin was going to list YWAM as a cult uh, mm-hmm. in his book, uh, uh, Kingdom of the Cults, or something like that. And um, so they, they kind of backed off of it. But uh, then I, I, the, the kind of birth in the early 90s is, I think, a carryover from that. So none of us, I don't think, can say that we're really pioneers. Uh, although I don't think any of us were actually uh, actually even knew about those guys in YWAM. So maybe we are, because uh, I, I never knew about that till after I got into it. But uh, anyways, thanks for the compliment. Yeah. No, you're you're a modern populizer. I know there's the Gordon Olsons is one of the names from YWAM, and uh, there's the McCabe's even before that. But uh, it it seems to be this resurgence, and it seems to be a resurgence time and time again based off of people actually taking seriously the texts of the Bible. Without, like, uh, for example, Platonism, you could trace the development. You have people saying, I studied Platonism. You have Augustine saying, I studied this this Plato, and I liked it, and then I incorporated it in, in lieu of the Bible. But you don't have that for open theism. It seems to be organic each time it arises. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your experience with the, the current open theist uh, movement, resurgence. Well, well uh, I, I kind of guess came into this in the late 80s. Um, I was actually a Calvinist for a while in, in uh, grad school, and I've always understood how Calvinists arrive at their conclusions exegetically, because I did. I, I, I was Calvinist because I felt I had to. Uh, Romans 9, I just, and I didn't have any other way of interpreting those things. Uh, 
so I understand how they get to that conclusion exegetically. I've never understood how anyone enjoys it. Because <laughs> uh, even when I was a Calvinist, I didn't like it. And, and I could never get into this, oh, God is so glorious and, and all creation is for his glory and even the damned are for his glory and all evil things are for his glory and he ordains it because he can and we have to praise him for it. I, I, I just couldn't get into that, calling that God glorious. But I believed it. Um, and so, but maybe it was predestined that I would eventually get out of it because it's hard to stay in a belief that you don't like. Uh, so I, I, in the late, uh, oh, I know, about 84, 85, I, I began to, I finally began to make some sense out of free will. And um, then I, I, I just began to read the Bible differently, began to notice things I didn't notice before. You know, God changing his mind and grieving over the way things turned out and being frustrated and being surprised and things like that. Um, but there's actually a, a transition phase I went through where I was a kind of a, an open Calvinist. <laughs> Where I, I held to that this kind of open creation and God, you know, leaves room for freedom and spontaneity. But when it comes to salvation, uh, He elects, because uh, I, that's I couldn't get I couldn't explain away the texts that seemed to teach that. And I've actually met a few people who are in that same spot. Um, it's just the kind of process you got to go through. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I kind of came full circle on it. I guess in the in the late in the late eighties, and I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I honestly. And then I, it came up when I was writing to my father the correspondences that led to Letters from a Skeptic. And I just put in there my perspective on why you can't blame God for you know all the stuff that's happening in this world. Because uh, my dad was saying, well, listen, if God knew ahead of time that if you, if you create a Hitler who's going to do this, then he's responsible. And I offered him the view that, well, I wasn't certain ahead of time that Hitler would do this. Um, and, and I didn't think it was a big deal, but man, was I wrong? Because... A couple of years later, uh, the, the troops came after me, tried to get me fired from Bethel, get my books banned and, and whatever. But uh, it was all fun. It seems to be a reoccurring theme, uh, Thomas J. Ord being outed from his position. And uh, tell us a little bit, they tried to kick you out of the Evangelical Theological Society. You got an interesting, funny story about that. Well, it, it what's funny about it is that I, 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 they, they made a motion to kick me out, along with Clark Pittick and John Sanders, but I wasn't a member, <laughs> and, and it's like you can't kick out someone who's not a member. Um, and then the the some people came up with this devious plot that, or this uh, conspiracy theory that I somehow caught wind that they're going to do this, and so I stayed out just so I couldn't get kicked out. So now I'll come in the next year, and it's like I'm not that, I'm not smart enough to be that devious. I, I I just forgot to register. Half the time I didn't register. You know, I I just would forget about it. So there's there's nothing to it other than my 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 stupidity. But uh, it was kind of funny. It is, it's kind of funny. You read the papers, and there's this back-and-forth paper. You, you'll write a paper. Ware will write a paper. Sanders would write a paper. And Ware is vicious. He's a vicious guy, and he just makes exactly. any sort of claim. He's actually a very, very nice guy. <laughs> he really is. On a one-to-one, -one, personal and personal, he's a sweet man. Uh, but, yeah, when it comes to arguments, he, he, can, he, he gets down, man. He, he can throw the gauntlet. Uh, but, but he's a nice guy. I, I like your responses. Your responses are basically pointing out that he's not condemning open theists. He's he's condemning normal Arminians with what he's claiming. Yeah, yeah. In his uh, book, God's Lesser Glory, which I thought always was a odd title for a book. But, um, yeah, he doesn't raise many arguments against uh, uh, open theism. In fact, um, I, I would argue that that book reveals a lot more about Bruce Ware's, the smallness of Bruce Ware's God, than it does anything about open theism. And here's why. 
uh, he, he faced the picture. In fact, here's a quote. Uh, he says, the, the God of open theism is a God who is um, can only hope for the best, and he's a nail-biting, hand-wringing deity who can only hope for the best. Okay, so that tells me that Bruce thinks that if God didn't at least uh, foreknow the future as an exhaustive certainty, or let alone predestine the future, that God would be worrisome. He'd be he'd be wringing his hands. You know, he he'd be scared. But see, any God who would be uh, afraid of of uh, or who could anticipate future certainties better than he can anticipate possibilities would be a dumb God. Uh, mm-hmm. We have trouble. At, the more possibilities we have to anticipate, uh, the less effective we are. But that's because we have finite intelligence. And so we have to spread our intelligence thin to cover all the possibilities. But if God is infinitely intelligent, has unlimited wisdom, then God doesn't have to spread his intelligence thin to cover any number of possibilities. Rather, if God has unlimited intelligence and you can't divide up infinity, then it's as though all of his attention is on each and every one of those possibilities. Um, And so whatever happens, God can have a plan in place that he's been preparing from the foundation of the world as to how to respond to that possibility. Um, And that his response is just as good as if that was the only possibility, as if if that was the only certainty. Um, It's just that he's so smart, any other thing could have happened and he would have been just as prepared. And so so only a, a God of limited intelligence would gain an advantage providentially by virtue of knowing one future certainty as opposed to a trillion, trillion, trillion possibilities. In other words, the God of the open view, if we're thinking consistently on this, uh, knows every possible future storyline as though it was the only possible future storyline. God knows every possible storyline the same way the classical God knows the one actual storyline. It's just that he's infinitely smarter. Because he knows every possible storyline that way. He anticipates every possible story. So in one sense, you might say, it's not that God, the open view of God, in the open view, God knows less than in the classical view. You might say God knows infinitely more. Uh, and it takes an infinitely wise God to govern a universe where there's, there's, there's freedom and spontaneity and, and moral decisions. It doesn't take any smarts at all to govern a universe where you've seen the You've seen the movie a thousand times, or uh, an infinite number of times, you know, because it's been certain to you from the start. Let alone takes no intelligence to run a universe that you're uh, you're controlling. It doesn't take any more smarts to do that than it does for me to wiggle my pinky. I I can do it because it's in my power. Yeah, God could create a world that he could exhaustively control. It's in his power, but it wouldn't take any. It wouldn't be very praiseworthy. Of course, he can do that. He's God. What's the smart when you're dealing with actual agents? Uh, and, and you have to outwit them, and you have to use your intelligence and anticipate things. And on that note, it's significant that the Bible highlights God's wisdom in providence at least as much as God's power in providence. Uh, and the open view is, I, I think, the only view where God actually has to rely on his wisdom. Yeah, I like that verse. They always they always misunderstand the verse that is, understanding is infinite, that's a, his processing power. That's not the amount of knowledge in his head. That's his ability to deal yes. with events. And they don't like that because they want God not to deal with events. God has everything eternal and contained, and he's not actively searching and understanding. So they'll misread that verse. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it, it, everything is eternally certain. So there's nothing, not, nothing more to figure out. Sounds good. So let's talk real quick about that Evangelical Theological Society issue. What was the final outcome? 
Um, both uh, Pinnock and Sanders uh, were uh, exonerated. Uh, they tried to vote them out, but uh, they only got and, and and some folks pull out all the stops. Uh, Norm Geisler said that if if we if open theists aren't ejected, then he's going to leave the society. He was one of the founders of it. Um, so some folks pull out all the stops, but uh, Pinnock won by a landslide. Um, I, I don't know the, the exact numbers. John's John, John's was a little closer. Uh, he had a harder time defending some of his statements. Um, and he made some statements I think were unfortunate, uh, you know, saying that God sometimes has false beliefs and things like that. Uh, but uh, they they nevertheless uh, voted to keep him. That's good. Yeah, I, I, I never did register for the ETS again. <laughs> I, I, I don't have any interest. So it's kind of like a shadow ban or something like that. Yeah. That's interesting. We we have had John Sanders on the program before, and I think he's great in linguistics. His newest book talks all about that. How do we understand language? Yeah, yeah, and body, the embodiedness of language. So very, very good. So let's let's talk real quick about you had a recent conversation with Trip Fuller about process theism, and that's a good good thing for everyone to listen to to pull down that podcast. Uh, Homebrew Christianity, I think it was on. Yeah. Yeah. Where you have this back and forth about the differences between process and open theism, and of course your, yeah, your, your uh, what was it? Your dissertation was on uh, Whitehead. Am no, I, it's actually yeah. on uh, Charles Hartshorn. Hartshorn. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, who was uh, a contemporary of Whitehead. Uh, it really came to process thought independent of Whitehead. The Whitehead had published his work first, and so uh, sometimes Hartshorn is portrayed to be a disciple of Whitehead. Uh, but that's that. That's not close to being true. Mm-hmm. He, he was a very good thinker. Sounds good. So you, you talked a little bit about uh, this this paper of yours in in that previous podcast, and uh, you had mentioned that there's uh, three differences, three main differences that you're pointing out between open theism and process, which makes it process not heretical. Is that the case, or am I misrepresenting what was said? Uh, I, um... Well, yeah, I, I, in, in my book, it's called Trinity and Process, um, a critical evaluation and reappropriation of Charles Hartshorn's dipolar theism towards a Trinitarian metaphysics. That's the title. You can tell it's a dissertation. Uh, and uh, he has six, what he calls six a priori truths. Uh, unlike Whitehead, Hartshorn builds his whole process uh, system on what he considers self-evident truths, uh, a priori truths. I argue that three of those are mistaken. Three are correct, uh, and they give you a relational and process sort of uh, view of reality, but three of them are incorrect. And um, the three that are not correct are the ones that require him to posit a necessary God-world relationship. Whereas if you take out those three, what I try to demonstrate in my book is that if you take out those three, what you have is a necessary God-God relationship. In other words, you have a great argument for the Trinity. Um, and and, and that, here's a major difference between process thought and open theism and Christianity in general. In process thought, God eternally has the world as his body. Uh, he, God didn't create the world ex nihilo. There's always been a non-divine world, and there's always been God. And so the relationship between God and the world is something like the relationship between your mind and your body. Um, one couldn't exist without the other. Uh, and uh, that implies then that God, because God didn't create the world, God is like part of the furniture of creation, and he's bought by the same metaphysical rules. There are rules that apply everywhere to God and to people. And God, a famous statement of Whitehead in process uh, and reality is, God is not an exemption 
uh, to the metaphysical principles. God is their chief exemplification. Uh, so there's these metaphysical principles that Hartshorne and Whitehead think they've hit on, and they, they, they constrain what God can do and what the creation can do and things like that. Um, and and those, that constraint, I think, uh, the implications of that, once you work it out, you have a view of God that's really quite far from orthodoxy. Uh, a God who can't supernaturally intervene in response to prayer. Um, uh, I, I don't know any process theologian could make sense out of the idea of God incarnate, God becoming a human being, uh, or uh, of God defeating evil in the end. God can't, there'll always be evil because evil is in the process view. It's just a function of uh, unfortunate decisions made in the world. Uh, and there's always going to be a world, so there's always going to be unfortunate decisions. And so uh, I, I, I'm really concerned by those open the theologians who actually are blurring the lines between process thought and open theism. I, I think we should keep those lines really, really clear. Yeah, and so I think you try to do this in your book, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. You try to build this uh, alternative way of looking at reality, a cruciform view, where we look at the Bible in light of Jesus. Yeah. Is, is that the case? Well, it, it's in light of the cross. Uh, and so uh, it, 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 this is not at all... You don't have to be an open theist to uh, follow this book. Um, I, I open theism comes into it a little bit, but but my thesis doesn't require it. And so, I, yeah, there are, I'm arguing that um, uh, when we when we look at the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, we can see something that the original audience couldn't see. And and uh, what we see uh, is allows us to see how uh, those violent portraits actually anticipate the cross. They they bear witness to the cross. Um, which is, I think, important because all Scripture is supposed to point to Jesus, and everything about Jesus is centered on the cross. And so uh, I'm trying to give folks a way that they can see that yeah. God is not this uh, horrendous genocidal uh, deity commanding, you know, the wiping out of the Canaanites and all the other kind of things. Um, that uh, we, 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 when we look at it through the cross, we can see something very, totally different than that. Mm-hmm. So my favorite book of yours, of course, is God of the Possible, and it seems like your views have developed since then, since writing Crucifixion of the Warrior God. I've heard various uh, interviews with you when you talk about how writing that book has changed your views of who God is. Can you just tell us how have your views developed since writing God of the Possible? Well, it hasn't changed my, my view of who God is, although I, I am much more emphatically cross-centered in my thinking now than I ever was before. Uh, but, but my basic understanding of God uh, as as having a loving essence uh, and creating humans out of love for the purpose of inviting it on, on love, uh, that hasn't changed at all. Really, the only thing that's changed is I, I think that my uh, my hermeneutic, uh, my, my way of interpreting Scripture, uh, has, has gotten more nuanced um, in, in the process of, of writing the crucifixion of the warrior God. Uh, I, I really come to see that, you know, throughout most— a lot of conservative Christians these days argue that you've got to stick to the original meaning of the text, even though they don't do that. Um, you know, when it comes to trying to square the classical view of God with the original text, it's impossible to do. Uh, you know, the classical view of God is the view that God is above time and God's above any kind of emotion and any kind of pain and suffering and, and can't be affected by anything. Well, good luck reconciling that view of God with the Bible, because every portrait of God in the Bible has God moving with us in sequence. Um, and, and has God being impacted by us? And has God suffering and being frustrated? And, and, and what, what does the cross mean if, if God can't change and God can't suffer? Um, 
so, but they claim that you have to stick to the original meaning. And in the process of, of researching crucifixion of the warrior God, I, I discovered that the, the church never interpreted the Bible that way uh, up until uh, around the Enlightenment. And that's when some secular humanists began to insist that the only meaning that a verse can have is the, the meaning it had to the original audience. And they insisted on that because they didn't think the Bible was divinely inspired. They, they were saying you can't read the, the Bible any different than you read any other ancient book. And, and gradually, Christians began to accept that, and uh, that's where we get this view today. But it, throughout church history, they have always assumed that God can intend meanings for passages that, that, the, that, that go beyond what the original author knew. Um, and it's only when you come to accept that that you can, you can begin to see how uh, all Scripture points to Jesus Christ and centered on the cross. And so my, my, uh, my, my approach to, to certain portraits of God has become much more nuanced. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the New Testament does that too. Uh, the use of Psalms 22 and referencing Jesus in his, uh, there's nothing overtly in the passage about the crucifixion, but it seems to have dual purpose and dual use. It seems to be a common thread in the New Testament. Yeah, if, if you look at all of the things that Matthew and John, Luke say are fulfilled, you know, Jesus, the, 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 this was fulfilled. You go back and look at the verses that they're actually citing, and it, it all but about eight, all but about eight cases, and maybe even less than that. I, I, I once counted them, um, but there's nothing predictive about the verse. Absolutely nothing. And, and in some cases, you can show that there couldn't be anything predictive. Like, like when 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 uh, Jesus is given vinegar for for water, he says, "I'm thirsty," so they give him this vinegar. And John says, "This was done to fulfill that which was written. They gave me uh, vinegar for water." Well, you go back and look at, at Psalm 69, which, which is what he's quoting. And it's David, or the psalmist, uh, complaining about how his enemies are, uh, are treating him. And he says, they gave me poison for food and uh, uh, sour wine for drink, or sour wine for, for water. And so here's the question. Um, if the second half was supposed to predict something that Jesus had to have happen to him, well then, how is it that the first half of that sentence isn't something that had to happen? There's no record of Jesus ever being poisoned. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and yet when no one's sitting around there going, oh my gosh, you have a verse that's not fulfilled. Uh, it, what, what happens is that the psalmist says this, and this is just an ancient Jewish way of interpreting things. When they say fulfilled, they, they didn't mean that it was predicted. They just meant that this fills out the meaning of that verse. And so whenever there's anything parallel that went on in the Old Testament and then happened in the life of Jesus, well, they say Jesus fulfilled it because Jesus fills out the meaning of it. So like, you know, uh, Hosea uh, in Hosea 6 says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. He's referring to Israel. He, was, you know, he called Israel his son. And Matthew takes it and applies it to Jesus when Jesus has to flee uh, in, 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 into Egypt. This was done to fulfill that which was written. But Matthew knew better than to think that Hosea was actually predicting something. He says he's presenting Jesus as the new Israel. Uh, the embodiment of all Israel was called to be. And so any parallels between Israel and Jesus, he's going to have Jesus fulfilling that. It's a major argument that's used by, sometimes by conservative Christians against open theism because they think that there's all these prophecies that had to be fulfilled. How could, how could God have known that the guard was going to give Jesus that, 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 that sour wine for water, vinegar for water? Well, God, there's nothing there to foreknow. Uh, they're, they're, they're always going to get retroactively, not predictively. So they look back and they find the parallels. 
but but the parallels aren't there so that they could find them. Uh, it, 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 it could have gone down a lot of different ways. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Paul even changes uh, the audience in Hosea's Jews, and he changes it to be about the Gentiles, kind of like yeah, that. Yeah, he does that in a couple places, and and see, that just shows the kind of flexibility that their exegetical rules had back then. You know, they weren't trying to cheat or anything. They weren't trying to connive or twist scripture, uh, but it was just the 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 understanding of the time was that you can find things in the passage that that are different than what the original author thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I, I, I don't think we should be overly constrained by the original meaning of the text. Now, that doesn't mean that we can find anything that we want. There's got to be criteria for it. And so I spent a lot of the book, uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, in Volume 1, making the case that our ultimate criteria for what we believe, for what we find in Scripture and what we believe about God should be the cross. Uh, that, that that should be our starting point, uh, not some philosophical conception of what some Greek philosopher thought God should be like. Yeah, it seems to be a very effective argument. We had a guy just join the group just the other day, and he says, I was an open theist until I read this crucifixion of the warrior God and learned this new way of understanding the Bible. But uh, talking real quick about this. Oh, yeah. Open theism, huh? Yeah, you talked about open theism from this book. But talking about. Or out of it. Into it. Into it. He became an open theist because he liked. Okay. <laughs> no, you didn't that, talk someone out of it. Yeah, I was going to say, how did that happen? That was probably your previous book. No, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> no doubt. With you. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, there's, there's this new found focus on uh, interpreting the text literally. You'd think maybe more people would be, uh, be open theists, maybe more people who care about the text. So how do you think the open movement is doing in this modern climate? Uh, well, I, it's hard to know, but my sense is, okay, and this is all anecdotal because no one's done any studies on this or whatever, but um, from the interactions I'm getting, I, I, I think that at a grassroots level, uh, more and more people are, are are gravitating towards this. A lot of people just come out uh, onto it on their own. I, I can't tell you the number of times I have people saying things like, well, you know, you just articulated what I was thinking. I just couldn't articulate it. Um, they're, they're, they just kind of come to this awareness that, yeah, of course the future is not written in stone. We've got free will for crying out loud. And um, so not much is changing in academia. Uh, the old guard is still alive and well and guarding. And uh, I know a number of folks that, that uh, uh, decided to go into the ministry instead of being a professor because no, one, no Christian institution is going to hire you if you're an open theist. Well, I can't say that, but... None, none of like the conservative Christian schools are, are going to do that, um, uh, but it, it, that will change eventually. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, that that never changes quickly. The old guard, as long as they're alive, they're going to be guarding. Uh, but I, I think that it's growing at a grassroots movement all over the place uh, to the point where it, it's it, folks are like wondering how this could ever be a big issue. Like what? How, why on earth? You know, I mean, the climate is changing a lot. It's, it's no longer the scandal it, it, it once was. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, when you're, you're talking about this uh, scholarship but uh, being embedded in these evangelical classical ideas, it doesn't seem to apply to secular scholarship and people who really want to focus on the Bible, like the Fred Thiems and the Bergamans of the world, people who want to actually do canonical criticism. They seem to be multiplying, in, in my estimation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Once you get out of evangelical circles, uh, it, it's a non-issue. And even some in evangelical circles... Like like Golden Gate, I, I don't know how he gets away with it, but uh, he, he sticks so closely to the text 
that that he he, he ends up saying. Uh, I mean, he's a real conservative guy, but uh, he's like, oh, well, you know, God apparently doesn't automatically foreknow everything that's going to happen because we have God asking questions and we have God changing his mind and we have you know so on and so on. Although he denies he's an open theist, but <laughs> read his book. That was always the claim against that Eldridge guy, uh, the, the God or um, oh, yeah, Wild yeah, at yeah. Heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he, he says God takes risks every other sentence. I mean, he's like, oh, this adventuresome God, this risky God, this you know, and so on. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he has a statement. By the way, in case you're wondering, I'm not an open theist. <laughs> and I found out. He told me that that the the publisher made him put that in there because uh, one reviewer said, oh gosh, this guy sounds like an open theist. So he just takes back without explaining anything. He just like declares that. Um, yeah. So it's it's that's Eric, what I, he's all, he has all the right intuitions. He just doesn't want to wear that label. Yeah, I, I was reading that book in college, and I come across that passage. It's just like in the middle of nowhere for no apparent reason. Uh, I'm not an open theist. In the middle of all these, it's like where did this paragraph come from? It's just out of nowhere. I, 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 when I was reading it, now is that in Sacred Romance or the one that came afterwards? I, 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 wild at Heart. Wild at Heart. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I started laughing out loud. It was just <laughs> really, really funny. I had actually talked with him once uh, and and tried to, uh, you know, persuade him of this. And um, uh, it's funny because when we're talking about God, it's we're on the same kind of plane. But as soon as we start talking about theory. He's like, well, you know, I think time's funky. Uh, you know, I, I, I think maybe God's like eternal and sees it all at once. But that doesn't minim- that doesn't change the fact that he's taking risks down here. And yeah, I just I couldn't get could, couldn't see the point. You'll see that even in Calvinist pastors, they'll get up there and they'll preach a whole sermon on Luke or John or something. They'll sound like an open theist, and then they start talking about who God is, and then they'll just the the switch flips. To- yeah, well, that is a paradox. Or, or contradiction that runs throughout the Christian tradition going back even before Augustine, but Augustine is the one who canonized it. Uh, you have to have this uh, dual focus. I mean, because see, here's the thing. If, if you're taking this, the Hellenistic model of God as timeless, immutable, impassable, you know, can't be affected by anything. Um, and now you, you have to squish it into the narrative somehow. You have to, you know, the narrative you regard as being authoritative. Well, what happens is that, uh, you just create masses of paradoxes there. Um, so when you're preaching, you'll preach the narrative, and so it sounds like you're talking about a God who moves with us in, in time and who's affected by us and passionate. But then when you go to theory, all of a sudden it's something totally different. And and uh, you just have to, I think that 90% or more of the so-called mysteries in Christian theology are the result of trying to fuse this presupposed Hellenistic view of God into the text. Uh, it, it, and you cover the whole thing up with mystery. Oh, it's a mystery. We don't uh, it, get rid of that presupposed model of God, and you get rid of ninety or more percent of of the alleged paradoxes uh, in in the Christian faith. Yeah, you got a lot of good articles out on this. Uh, one one of the one the ones that I think is very helpful is your distinction between the Platonic active knowledge and then experiential knowledge or passive knowledge or being able to gain knowledge. You said earlier that the God in open theism, Yahweh, a God of the Bible, has more knowledge than this uh, philosophical God of the abstract. And one such way is experience, and that, that's denied, this knowledge that comes to God through his interaction with the world. 
and just being able to understand how things feel rather than just facts and numbers and just cold ideas in his head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so if, if like, we know that this is this moment instead of a previous moment because there's a newness to it. We're experiencing a, a newness. Every moment we experience a newness. Uh, and you can know that something's going to happen, but still the experience of it adds to it. If your experience, like we knew that we were going to get this little puppy, but when we actually got the little puppy uh, yesterday, uh, it, it, now it increased our knowledge because we're experiencing it. Um, if, if there was no difference between your knowledge that something was going to happen and your experience of it, then you then the, you couldn't tell the, the two apart. There would be no two. You couldn't have a distinction there. And so if God doesn't uh, experience the world uh, in sequence, then God doesn't know what time it is. The, the whole, whole whole world's a solid snapshot that he's been eternally gazing at, you know, but time is only real to us, not to God. So, so, uh, so is there a time, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it, is that even a reality to us? But uh, yeah, it, it's uh, uh, an important distinction that if, if God experiences the world, then God, he doesn't just know you in the abstract. He knows you uh, experientially and the experience. And, and when you make a decision, God always anticipated that as a possibility and has a plan in place. Uh, but the experience of you making that decision is a new thing. It's a new thing. And what's wrong with that? I mean, I see that as part of his perfection. I don't see any de de deficiency in that. I, I think a God who's, who's locked in a timeless now, that's a deficient view of God. A God who can actually created a creation where there's newness and spontaneity and he empowers creatures to make decisions and he experiences new things. He's, he takes risks. It's, it's something of an adventure even for him. Oh, I, I, I think that's the most praiseworthy model of God I can imagine. And it yeah. also explains, why is it that we, you know, we're in his image and, and, and we like risk and we like adventure. Uh, a life without any kind of adventure is really, really boring. Uh, well, if we're made in his image, isn't there something like that in God? You know, if, if there's nothing like that in God, then our sense of adventure must be evil because it's totally ungodly. I, I, think it's I once asked a Calvinist, I said, what does Jesus mean by saying, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father? And he didn't have an answer. He just... Well, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, I think that's such a central verse. Uh, I mean, that leads to the question, what does Jesus reveal about God? Uh, you know, it's like, if you can't answer that question... <laughs> How can you not answer that question? That's the central question. My gosh. That's yeah, because yeah, all their attributes, all the attributes they want, none of them were apparent in Jesus, and Jesus was the image of God. And and we're in the image of God. And they want to create an abstract. We're not the image of God. We're this worm theology, as Dr. Leighton Flowers puts it, that the Calvinists want this worm theology. We're less than nothing. We're dirt. And it's just not yeah. it's not the Bible. I, I'm altogether worthless. I am maggot juice. I am snails, farts. I am, you know, they just, they, they, how is it glorifying to God to make yourself the most despicable being imaginable? You, know, you are his work of art for crying out loud. Now, yeah, we're fallen. We're fallen. And, and on our own, we're incapable of restoring ourselves. So in that sense, we're dead in sin. But, but uh, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you or find you beautiful. And, and, uh, and look, at, uh, at the very least, I, I know this about every human being that exists. Uh, God thought that they were worth becoming a human and dying for. And, and in fact, on the cross, God goes the, the furthest extreme he could possibly go on our behalf. The all-holy God experiences our sin. He becomes our sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And, and the perfectly united God 
Father, Son, Spirit. They experience uh, alienation from each other. Jesus experiences God forsakenness. Uh, so God actually experiences his own antithesis on the cross, which shows you that God couldn't have gone any further. Than he, in all eternity, he couldn't go an inch further than he went uh, out of love for us. And the, the infinite distance he crossed uh, on our behalf and the infinite price he paid on our behalf shows the infinite worth that every individual has. And reveals the infinite perfection of God's love. That's why the cross is the supreme revelation of God. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why John, John says in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. And then in 1 John 3, 16, he says, here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So do the math. God is cross-like love. God is Calvary-like love. God is self-sacrificial love. Down to his very essence, that's who God is. Uh, you ask me what, I, what I, I think Jesus reveals about God? It's that. That God is infinite, perfect, unwavering, everlasting love. Absolutely. So let's talk about, uh, do you have any upcoming books in the work? Uh, I'm supposed to be getting back to um, the old project that I left when I started Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And I, I initially thought that that book on the Old Testament violence would be a, a summer project and end up going on for over 10 years. <laughs> so uh, I'm supposed to get back to this. Um, and and I, the, it was called Myth of the Blueprint. Um, uh, we, we still might call the popular version of it that, but the, the, the academic version is, supposed to be, is, is going to be called Alien Perfection. And all I'm do, doing here is I, I, I want to substantiate the claim that this classical view of God is, in fact, completely indebted to Hellenistic philosophy. Uh, and I've read all the books that try to argue against it, and I think they're not seeing the forest through the trees. They, 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 they focus on this particular theologian who's argued against philosophy here, and this theologian argued against philosophy. And, but there, you have to look at the structure of the thought to see this. And so it's a, this is another massive project uh, because I, I, I'm going to get, basically I'm having to read everything from 500 BC to 580 uh, that's pertinent to this topic and to show how the, the, the kind of questions that the ancient Greeks were asking was very different from what uh, the, the, the Jewish and the early Christian tradition were uh, asking. But those questions and that way of answering those questions uh, gradually creeps into the church. And the church's view of God goes from being a narrative-driven view to a philosophical-driven view. The, the, the basic thing, uh, Chris, is that um, you know, the, the ancient Greeks, they assumed, and this is, I think, the biggest philosophical mistake ever made. Uh, they, they wanted to explain the world, the, uh, you know, the world of contingency, the world of becoming. Um, they saw that the world isn't self-explanatory. And so they asked, what is, what is the substratum uh, that holds it all together? Uh, and they assumed that to arrive at the ultimate reality, you, you have to negate everything that you're trying to explain. Otherwise, you'll get an infinite regress. And so they, if you're trying to explain contingency, well, ultimate reality must be devoid of contingency. It must be altogether necessary. And if you're trying to explain becoming, well, ultimate reality must be devoid of becoming. Um, and if you're uh, having to explain cause and effect and things being affected, well, the ultimate reality must be something that's unaffected. And so you end up with something like Aristotle's unmoved mover. Um, and that view, which you only arrive at if you're trying to explain the world, uh, then later on begins to creep into the church. Um, early, early on, the Jews weren't trying to explain the world, and the early Christians weren't trying to explain the world. They were bearing witness to Revelation. But that philosophical, philosophical view begins to creep in quite early, but it doesn't do much impact until around uh, Augustine. 
And mm -hmm. with Augustine, mm -hmm. you see a complete takeover of the thing. The mistake they made was this. To explain contingency, you don't have to posit a reality that's utterly devoid of contingency, uh, that's completely necessary. You have to just posit a reality that is at least necessary, but can also have contingent aspects. And to explain uh, becoming, you don't have to posit an ultimate reality that is completely devoid of becoming. You, you just have to uh, posit a reality that's not entirely becoming. And, and, and so that, there you end up with, if, if you understand that, you end up with a view of God where God is necessary and unchanging in all the ways that are praiseworthy to be necessary and unchanging, but God is very contingent and very changing in all the ways that it's virtuous to be contingent and changing. Um, and so you end up with a personal view of God, where God's character is invariant, God's character is necessary, his existence is necessary, but because he's a personal God, he's perfect, he's, he, he's the most changed being. Uh, he, he's sensitive to every, every little change that, that there is in the human heart and in, 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 in the world, and he's deeply affected by what we do because he's a God of love. So I, I think the, the, the Greeks, they're smart people, but that was, I think, that mistake has had more impact uh, on uh, Christian theology than any other single thing, maybe on any theology in, in, in world history. Yeah, now, now I'm really excited for this book. I've heard you talk about it before that you're working on it. I wanted to make sure that that wasn't Crucifixion of the Warrior God and that this is a different project. We just had uh, Robert Wisner, who's a Calvinist, and his, his dissertation was on Jewish Second Temple thought. And his argument is that those predestination elements are within the the scene community um, back before even Jesus. And he his claim is that the Essenes influenced Paul's writings, which is an interesting contention. So yeah. I, I'm sure you're going to cover Second Temple literature. Oh, yeah. Well, Second Temple uh, Judaism, that is a lot where a lot of, where you begin to see a Hellenistic influence even in Judaism. And uh, you have uh, uh, a weird combination of, D.A. Carson uh, points this out in his uh, book on uh, divine sovereignty, um, that you, you have paradoxes all over the place because they're affirming free will, but you also have all this predestinarian stuff. Um, now, he thinks that the new element there was the free will. I am arguing the new element was the predestination stuff. And they were influenced by Stoics who were fatalists. And, um, uh, and then they begin to read the, the, the scripture that way. And the Essenes were, yeah, yeah totally. It, it's it, they're a weird, they're a weird mix because they're totally predestinarian, and yet they're really big on spiritual warfare. So you have this battle. They're always talking about the battles, you know, and this is part of the apocalyptic movement stuff. Uh, but the, but everything is predestined. It's like what kind of battle is that? It's like God's fighting with puppets on his hands. Yeah, you you absolutely see uh, the rewriting of the Exodus thirty-two narrative in the Book of Jubilee, where God's contingency god's frustration is downplayed and like some sort of sovereignty is upplayed yeah in, yeah. in the rewriting of this narrative so, you, you find you find that, that that even in the septuagint uh the jewish translation of the old testament where they they are they're always worried about uh anthropomorphisms and so whenever god's portrayed in too too much of a human way they'll find any way they can to try to like translate the text in a way that downplays that um, but yeah, you have a lot of funky stuff going on in, in Second Temple Judaism and in the movement that came uh, after that. One of the things that's interesting is that, uh, and this is what I think influenced Paul, is that you, you, you find that there's a growing sensitivity uh, towards God's character, and therefore I felt need to distance God from immoral activity. 
Um, and, and, and so they, they would sometimes introduce intermediary beings uh, and, and, and material that would ascribe violence to God, they would say actually applied to uh, this uh, angel, a, a fallen angel of some sort. Um, you find this in the, the, the Wisdom of Solomon. And, and uh, what's really interesting, although I, I'll say it quickly because it's inter interesting to me, maybe to you, but probably not so much to a lot of our, re our, our listeners, but um, uh, we have three uh, texts prior to Paul where they take Numbers 16, which is uh, about Korah's rebellion. And in, in that narrative, it says that the earth opened its mouth and swallowed these people, and, and then a fire came down and incinerated these people. And, and it gives you the impression that God did it, although it doesn't say that God did it. Um, but in these, these three uh, books that pre, uh, predate Paul, they all attribute that to uh, a destroying angel. And uh, that a destroying angel came down there and, and slew these people. And what's interesting is that Paul then does the exact same thing. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, don't be like the grumblers in the Old Testament uh, who are destroyed by the destroying angel. Now, there's no destroying angel mentioned in that, 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 that narrative. Um, but now, if, if you regard Paul as being authoritative, authoritative, then authoritative, then there must have been a destroying angel there. And and what I do in Crucifixion of the Warrior God, as well as in the popular version of that book, which is called Cross Vision, much much shorter book and much easier to read. Um, but when you go to the narrative, you actually find evidence in the narrative that suggests that there were demonic agents did all the killing, uh, not Yahweh. Uh, and I, I can't go into that right now, but but. Uh, um, yeah, it was just one of the most fascinating parts of this research was I, I came to discover that in all of the passages where God's depicted as violent, there is, even in the text itself, things that indicate that, in fact, it wasn't God who was violent. He allowed the violence as judgment, but the violence was always carried out by other agents. Yeah, very interesting. <laughs> and that's uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God for everyone who's interested. It's on Kindle and hard copy. And, and uh, cross vision is uh, cross vision is uh, the, the, uh, hard, hard cover, and uh, crucifixion of the warrior god is soft cover. Mm -hmm. But crucifixion of the warrior god is almost fifteen hundred pages, two volumes, and cross vision is I think two hundred and fifty. So, yeah, very good. So uh, this is going to be about uh, the end of our podcast. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. My guest today has been Gregory Boyd, a pastor of Woodlands Hills Church and uh, author of Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Do you have any closing thoughts for us? Anything? Well, God bless you. Keep up the good work. I'm happy to see you have Calvinist on, and, and you mix it up with these folks and dialogue with these folks, and I encourage you to always do it in love. Sometimes, these days, it, it, you know, it, people are losing the ability to dialogue in love. Have you noticed that? Uh, uh, maybe myself sometimes, too. I don't know. First <laughs> uh, Corinthians 16, 14. Do everything in love. Uh, and I always tell folks that if you ever are in a debate and you find yourself more concerned with winning the, winning the debate than loving the person, do the kingdom a favor and shut up. <laughs> and I try to apply that to myself. It sounds good. Uh, thank you so much yeah, for you being on the program. Thanks for having Thanks. me. Bye-bye.